<laughs> I know you just got me stumped. I'm more of a scientific person. I need proof to believe things. And uh, what's written in, in a book doesn't exactly do it for me. Today we are in for a treat in our series entitled Hurdles. We get to hear from Senator Mark Green. Now, uh, Mark has distinguished himself in the fields of medicine, politics, and military service. After graduating from West Point, he went and did his medical training not far from here at Wright State, where he uh, finished and was in the Army as a special operations flight surgeon. He has served several tours in Afghanistan and Iraq and was a part of the medical uh, physician's emergency team that uh, participated in Operation Red Dawn. Do you remember what that was? The capture of Saddam Hussein. In fact, Mark sat with Saddam Hussein after the first 24 hours of him being captured and interrogated him for six hours. After leaving the military, uh, Mark authored a book called A Night with Saddam that maybe some of you have read. And then in uh, 2006, uh, after leaving military service, he became the founder and CEO of Align MD, a healthcare staffing company. And two years ago, he was elected to the Tennessee uh, Senate. And then in Mark's spare time, uh, he has used his medical training and education uh, to study the role between creation and science. And you're in for a treat this morning because here's, he's here today to help us answer the question, is evolution the solution? So welcome, Mark Green. Thank you, Well, back in uh, 2003, uh, as the special operations flight surgeon assigned to that task force looking for Saddam, I got to be the first doctor to go into Baghdad. And in that role, my, my first job when I hit the ground was to find a vehicle that we could use as an ambulance in the event that any of the Rangers or Navy SEALs that were with me got wounded. So I started looking for a vehicle that I could commandeer, all in accordance with the Geneva Convention now, mind you. So I find this Nissan pickup truck that looks perfect for an ambulance. I rip open the steering column and I began to hotwire the truck. Now, let me just say, despite being from Mississippi originally, I am not a criminal. They, they teach you this stuff in special operations, but I'm hotwiring the truck and this uh, huge bearded guy comes up and he grabs me and he spins me around. And let me just ask has anybody here ever stolen a car? Okay, there may be a district attorney in the office, so be careful raising your hand. But um, I don't know about you, but I was petr- I thought I was going to lose my head. I mean, despite being an ex-Army Ranger, I thought I was going to lose my head. Well, he quickly told me the agency of our government that he worked for and that he'd already stolen that truck. That was his truck. So uh, I moped away. I think he felt a little sorry for me. And he said, you know, buddy, down at the end of the runway, there's a powder blue Nissan Maxima got the keys in the ignition. And sure enough, it was there. And I hopped in and I hit the keys. Nothing happened. Popped the hood. Somebody had stolen the battery. 
So I mope back, and as I'm heading back, I pass that Nissan truck, and I see that the agency guy is nowhere to be seen, and I'm thinking, Nissan Maxima? Nissan truck? I looked left, I looked right, and I made off with the guy's battery. And, and it was a perfect fit, mind you. We spent that first night in Baghdad listening to Iraqi radio, myself, the SEAL Team Commander, and a Nissan Maxima. It was, it was quite nice. The story doesn't end there, though. Several months later, I'm in the post exchange, which is like a little mini Walmart traveling around the battlefield with soldiers. And in walks the bearded agency guy. He sees me. He, he makes a beeline straight to me. He comes up, pokes his finger in my chest, and he says, Hey, buddy, did you take my battery that night we came into Baghdad? And I said, Yeah, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I stole your battery. And he said, No worries. I had taken it out of that Nissan Maxima I sent you down to go get. And with that, he walked away. Well, thanks for having me here. You know, my story, actually, my military story actually began at West Point, and uh, I got a degree in economics, uh, went into the Army as an infantry officer and a ranger, and uh, served, served as an infantry officer, actually uh, was in command in the 82nd Airborne Division when uh, jumping out of airplanes for a living. When my father had a catastrophic event, his esophagus essentially ruptured, and it's, uh, the mortality rate of this is extremely high. He should have died. A surgeon saved his life. And I went to the Army, and I said, would you send me to medical school? So this simple boy from a dirt road in Mississippi gets to go to medical school, and I wind up at Wright State in Dayton. Well, in my senior year of residency, the, uh, the unthinkable happens. Cue the slide. Uh, the unthinkable happens, and 9-11 happens. Uh, I am an ex-Army Ranger, now an ER physician, and the Special Operations Community says, we want you. So I head into the Special Operations world, the dark side of the forces, I call it. If you saw the movie Black Hawk Down, or Lone Survivor, those are the un- that's the unit that I got to be the physician for. And it was pretty amazing, and because of that, I got to meet a pretty interesting guy. And that guy was Saddam Hussein. I actually took this picture myself uh, of him in the cot that night that we caught him. I spent about six hours chatting with him. The thing I think that struck me the most about Saddam Hussein was this. This is the lesson. Absolute power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I asked Saddam, you know, why did you uh, invade Kuwait? Why did you start Desert Storm 1? And Saddam gave me all these justifications about who owned which oil field. But the last thing he said was insightful in the mind of a tyrant. He said, all of human civilization comes from the Tigris and Euphrates River. Every person on this planet is an Iraqi. And I am the president of Iraq. Essentially, Saddam was saying, I'm the president of the world. I can do whatever I want. Fascinating. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Without some kind of separation of power, that, that sort of arrogance takes us to totalitarianism. It's pretty, pretty amazing. But while I was there in Baghdad, some soldiers, you know, I'm the physician. There's a lot of downtime in combat and the soldiers talk. And one of the, this young sergeant asked me, he said, you know, Doc, you're, you're a scientist of sorts as a physician. Is it evolution or is it creation? And I said, well, I have my opinions and these are kind of my thoughts. And before long, they're like, well, why don't you teach us a class on this? So 
I produced a, a brief class that I taught in Baghdad back in 2003. And since that time, I've had the opportunity to share this a couple of times. And Chad asked me to come today. We actually met out in California and he said, would you come and talk about a part of that uh, of, of that lecture? And so that's what I'm here to do today. Before we get started, though, we've got to define some terms. And probably the first one I want to talk about is a law. And we'll talk about theory, science, faith, all of this stuff, because it is important. But essentially, we, in our understanding, go from certainty to uncertainty. And it's a spectrum. You know, a law is something we can test. It's like gravity. I drop a quarter, it falls. We can calculate the force, the gravitational force. It's mathematical. It's 100%. It's testable every time. That's a law. But a theory is something that we can't necessarily test. We're not going to be able to put you in a rocket ship and speed you at the speed of light to see if you don't age. But the theory of relativity is a theory. And some people accept it, but that requires somewhat of a degree of faith. Because we can't necessarily prove it. Science, though, is really just simply... If you reduce it to its simplest definition, making a bunch of observations and drawing a conclusion. We can watch a wolf pack and watch their behaviors and then the scientist draws a conclusion. That's that's science. We can look at how people react to a certain drug. Have them write up how they feel. That's that's science. That's the scientific process of making observations and drawing a conclusion. Next slide. There's some importance to why these definitions matter. The fact that these are some quotes, the fact that evolution has taken place is no longer questioned by serious scientists. Although there are several theories explaining or are competing to describe just how it happened. In this respect, evolution is similar to gravity. Dr. James Truffle. Now, we can't tell you how it happened, but it's as certain as gravity. Okay, that seems a little bit academically dishonest to me. And it's a little frustrating as a scientist when I was in medical school that people would make these kinds of statements. This statement by Michael Dent, he's an MD, PhD, microbiologist. Neither Darwin nor any subsequent biologist has ever witnessed the emergence of one new species as it actually occurs. Lynn Margella, she's a PhD at the University of Massachusetts. She was in a conference. She's a world-renowned molecular biologist, about three or 400 molecular biologists in the room. And she said, raise your hand if you've ever witnessed the emergence of a new species through a series of mutations. No one could raise their hand. Yet Dr. Treffel says it's the same as gravity. I don't know about you. I drop a quarter. It falls every time. That's gravity. Evolution is gravity. Definitions are important. What is faith? What is science? Next slide. Because both of us, the creationists, you know, we have our sort of crutch when we can't explain something. Sometimes we'll say, well, God just made it that way. And that's not necessarily a scientific argument, right? That's a that's faith. Um, but the evolutionists have their bad argument, too. They say, well, I can't explain how it went from, you know, this to incredibly complex. So it must have been billions of years. And that's kind of where they put their faith. But the truth of the matter is, is the second law of thermofluidynamics says that the world progresses from order 
to disorder, not disorder to order. If you put a lawnmower out in your yard and a hundred years come back, it's rusted and fallen apart. You can't put parts out there and a hundred years later, it's going to come back together. That, that, that is a violation of a law of thermodynamics, a physical law that exists in the universe. So to say time is the hero of the plot, well, that's just a bad argument. Next slide. And it's faith, actually. So can you actually look, observe, and make a conclusion that says there is a creator? That there's some kind of an engineer in the garden? And I would submit that you can. And there are three essential arguments that I would make. Chad has asked me to focus on this first one, irreducible complexity. But the other is defiance of laws of chemistry and physics. I just alluded to one of those, the second law of thermofluidodynamics. And then design with purpose. If you stumbled across this thing in the woods, you would make the assumption, I think, that somebody made it. Why? Because it's incredibly complex. Metal doesn't exist this way in nature. And you'll see these things called vapor locks that are just perfectly designed and have a purpose to them. By making observations of those kinds of things, it just makes sense that you'd say, wow, somebody made that. So what is irreducible complexity? And this is one of the things, the topic I'm going to talk about today. Irreducible complexity is, is important in the argument for the creationist because of this. Evolution assumes a series of minuscule changes over time. And each change is has to give a survival advantage to the organism. If it doesn't, and it causes a disadvantage, the organism dies and evolution ends. So each subsequent step has to give a survival advantage. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who uh, is one of the most prolific writers on evolution, said that suddenly appearing complexity Suddenly appearing complexity is irrational. So for evolution to be true, there have to be these intermediate steps, and the intermediate steps must function, because if they don't function, the organism dies, evolution ends. So if you can take something and reduce it to its most simple possible state and maintain its function, and yet it's still incredibly complex, then that is said to be irreducibly complex, and as Richard Dawkins admitted himself, it's irrational to think that that happens by chance. Next slide. And what you saw there was a mouse trap. And that mouse trap, in its most simple form, has multiple parts, multiple little parts, all of which have to come together precisely for that thing to function. And that platform, if it's made of paper, it won't work. If the hammer which is an essential part to do the job. It's made of string. We're just going to swat our little curry, furry uh, rodent, okay? Our goal is not that. <laughs> if this thing doesn't work, you throw it in the garbage, right? And evolution of the mousetrap ends. Okay, you get the point. Next slide. Now, I'm going to talk about an irreducibly complex system, blood clotting. Okay, blood clotting. But before I do that, i got to tell you how the parts are made. So we're going to get into your, your DVD manual. How many of you re, actually read the DVD manual? Okay, we're in, you're in for a treat today then. We're going to dig into the details. 
okay? We're going to dig into these details. Um, before we make proteins, which your body is a just big pile of very effectively connected proteins and, and other chemicals, you, I want you to figure out, I want you to know a little bit about how we make proteins. Our proteins are coded by our DNA, our genes. And we start with these billions of billions of genes, the, the content of your blueprint, the blueprint that is you. And that blueprint, we go from that blueprint through a very intricate process to make a protein. And proteins must be incredibly precise. And I'll talk a little bit about why in just a moment. Well, if you break that DNA down into its smallest, smallest little piece, a single molecule of DNA is made up of a phosphoric acid, a sugar, and a nitrogenous base. Next slide. Now, there are actually four of these bases, and, and that makes up the four letters that comprise your DNA. There are four letters in your DNA, and interestingly enough, each word in the language of your genes is three letters. So we have four possible combinations that can form three-letter words, and that is your DNA. Next slide. Now... Um, you can see here, if we're going to take that DNA message and move it into something that will code for the exact perfect protein, we've got to get from the inside of the cell where the nucleus is that's protecting extra protection around that DNA molecule and get it out into the cytoplasm of the cell where the protein synthesis occurs. But to do that, we've got to make a blueprint that we can transfer from the DNA out to the protein manufacturing plant. And we do that by a couple of molecules that bind in exactly the right spot on the DNA. Now, we don't want to code today for insulin. Today, we're going to clone for hemoglobin. We're, we're, we're going to make a, make a hemoglobin molecule protein. Well, it has to recognize the exact spot on the DNA and then this organism, or this uh, protein molecule, which is actually 10 different proteins, RNA polymerase binds at exactly the right spot. And transcription factor 2D binds at ex exactly the right spot. And what it does is prevents the RNA polymerase from unzipping the DNA in the wrong direction. If you didn't have it, if these weren't there together, the RNA polymerase would unzip in the wrong direction. So, next slide. What happens is, is that RNA polymerase unzips the DNA double helix. And a corresponding RNA comes along and binds and makes its template off the DNA. Eventually, the RNA polymerase, which is out here unzipping this thing, recognizes a specific set of alphabetic letters here and it stops the process at exactly the precise point. Next slide. So here we are. This is just RNA where we started. We make that template using RNA polymerase and transfactor 2D and, and this is what we have, pre-messenger RNA. Now, this thing gets a, a molecule stuck on the beginning of it so that it can recognize some stuff later. And then little pieces of it have to be precisely cut out. 
so that the only piece going out to make the protein is the exact correct version in messenger RNA. We still don't really know how the body knows exactly which pieces to cut out. We are not smart enough yet to figure that out. So this is our messenger RNA, which becomes the blueprint of hemoglobin. Next slide. Now, now we're out in the cytoplasm in the cell and it's time to build a protein. But we not only need our messenger RNA, we also need transfer RNA, which is the forklift that will bring the amino acids in. Right. Proteins are made up of amino acids. You guys know complete proteins have all 20 something um, necessary amino acids, etc. This is your forklift and it's called a transfer RNA and it binds with three letters. Remember, our words are three letter words, the exact amino acid that it's going to carry to the manufacturing assembly line. And we need ribosomal RNA and all of this stuff is made in the D in, from the DNA just like the messenger RNA, the ribosomal RNA is actually the assembly line. Next slide. Now, I know this is sort of complex. Just stay with me. I'm, I'm take, you're getting basically two semesters of biochemistry from medical school in about three minutes, okay? So bear with me. So the messenger RNA that's been chopped into its exact, precise, correct words binds to the blue ribosomal RNA, the assembly line. The transfer RNA brings in the exact correct amino acids, and they bind to the binding site. The second one comes in, and then a bond forms facilitated by all of these coming together between an amino acid and another amino acid. It leaves its amino acid, and it, and it runs away to pick up another one, a new one comes in, the messenger RNA moves down the assembly line, or the ribosome moves down the assembly line, and we are building a protein. Now, all of this has to happen to build one protein. One protein. Next slide. Protein synthesis must be exact. One word in the DNA is off in cystic fibrosis. One letter, one letter is off in sickle cell anemia. And you get a distorted hemoglobin molecule that if modern medicine doesn't intervene, the patient dies. Protein, proteins are everywhere. Insulin molecules that go and second message your cells to take sugar out of the bloodstream. Muscle fibers are proteins, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Proteins are everywhere, and they must be the exact right shape, like a key that fits into a lock, the exact right biochemical charge. They have to be perfect. Otherwise, we get disease and death. Next slide. So that's kind of complex, I guess you could say. Let's... <laughs> Let, let's talk about blood clotting. Now, blood clotting is an interesting thing. We, we as mammals have this thing called blood, and our blood takes our nutrients. It takes oxygen to the cells. It removes carbon dioxide, takes it to our lungs where we expel it, and to our kidneys where we get rid of other chemicals. Blood is critical. The question is, did blood happen by accident 
Or was blood good engineering? Next slide. This is the actual clotting cascade with its 21 different molecules of multiple proteins each. Forget that. Next slide. (laughs) All right, we're going to take this thing and use our imagination, and we're going to come up with the simplest form of an imaginary blood clotting that we can imagine. So this is just us using our imagination. If, If there's no blood clotting, remember what happens, you bleed to death. So first injury, you bleed to death, evolution ends. So for evolution not to end and blood clotting to happen and survive, you've got to have some mechanism that clots the blood. But what happens if you just clot the blood? I mean, everybody knows what a heart attack is. That's a blood clot in a vessel, a small vessel in the heart. Depriving that muscle of oxygen, you die. In the brain, it's a stroke. Okay? We can't have that clotting mechanism just going crazy. If there's a clotting mechanism with no way to start it, and it just clots, then you die. And there is no evolution. So you must simultaneously have evolved the protein that starts clotting. And clotting has to be turned off in its natural state, or you just clot and die. So you have to have this signal that turns the clotting on at the precise moment. You get a cut, turn the clotting on. But what happens if you turn the clotting on and you can't stop it just at the wound site? You clot everything off and you die. So there has to be some kind of way to stop the clotting. Some protein has got to be out there that turns this thing off. So if we reduce all of this down to one protein here, one protein here, and one protein here, we've got to figure out how to stop this, though, because if we've stopped clotting, it can't be permanent. Or the next time you get injured, you bleed to death and die, and evolution stops. So we had to have simultaneously evolved. This is, for, for this mechanism to be the mechanism for carrying nutrients to the body, you had to have simultaneously had signals that start it, signals that make it happen, or, or some mechanism that makes it work, signals to tell it when to stop, and some mechanism that actually causes it to stop. Next slide. Okay, that just says what I just described. Next slide. So either all four mechanisms happen simultaneously or the organism doesn't evolve. You guys got that. And, it, and the question is, is that... Did that happen by chance or was it great engineering? Next slide. The problem is is that the chemicals themselves, the proteins themselves, aren't enough. Because blood, at least the way we know it today. Now, I can imagine maybe there was some different blood before. Okay, and maybe there was some different uh, chemical process that occurred. But that is my imagination and, quite frankly, that's faith. Okay? So if anybody tells you there must have been some other way and then that's faith, not science. But if I observe that blood clots when it stops flowing, then there's got to be some kind of mechanism called a pump that keeps the blood flowing. So simultaneous to the chemicals themselves, we also had to have evolved a pump that kept it flowing. Well, pump in the body, your heart, is a, is a, is a muscle that when it contracts, 
squeezes the volume down to nothing and pushes the blood out. Right. And everybody gets that from the basic science class. But what's happening is a muscle is contracting. Well, how does a muscle contract? Well, it my brain tells this bicep to shorten and that muscle telescopes in on itself. And I'll, I'll try my best to orient you to this. Now we're going to get into physiology. We went from biochemistry, now we're into physiology. Uh, you have these muscle fasciculuses that can be reduced down to a muscle fiber, to a myofibril, and we're looking with an electron microscope now. And you see this is called the Z-line. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. This is a Z-line. This is the A-band, and this is actually the H-band right in here. This is the Z-line where an actin protein molecules or fiber is actually attached. And then this, this myosin fiber is in the center. Next slide. This is the Z-line I just mentioned right here and right here. These are blood vessels. This is that H line. Okay. I'm just orienting you right now, and I'll tell you what all this means in a moment. These little tubes right here are stored calcium. Because what happens when your brain says, we're going to play the violin, it tells the muscle fiber, release some calcium. Calcium gets released. You'll see in a moment what that does. Okay, it's time to relax the muscles, suck all the calcium back up. And that's what this set of tubules does. It stores, releases, and pulls back in the calcium when necessary. Next slide. Okay. So again, this is our Z-line with our actin. And this is a picture of actin. This is a picture of the myosin filament. That's this thick one. So we've got to figure out how this contracts in, right? So what happens is these little arms reach across and they grab the actin and they pull it in. They pull it this way. And they pull this one this way. And the Z-lines move together. That's how your muscle contracts. That myosin head reaches over and it grabs that actin and it pulls it to itself and the Z-lines come together, and the muscle contraction occurs. Pretty crazy. Let's get even more complex and detailed. Next slide. So now we're going to focus on one of those little arms. This is our myosin, and this is our actin. This molecule is called a troponin. If you've ever had a heart attack, your doctor is measuring your troponin level. Because the troponin in the heart muscle is specific to just the heart muscle. And we can measure that and say there's been damage to heart muscle. Troponin covers this little site on the actin filament where the myosin would connect and make its little pull that moves them together. The troponin covers that site because if it didn't cover that site, we'd have a constantly contracted muscle, which would be bad. And if your heart constantly contracts, then you die. Your blood all clots off, remember? So what we've got to do is have some mechanism that covers this thing until we're ready for it. Well, we do. That binding site for this myosin head is covered by troponin. 
But we've got to have some way to get it off there when it's time to contract the muscle. Guess what? We do. A calcium molecule is released when the brain tells that little tubule system, release the calcium. The calcium is released. It binds to the troponin. It changes the shape of the troponin just perfectly, and it exposes that binding site. The cross-bridge myosin binds. A molecule of energy is consumed, and the muscle is contracted as that arm pulls back. And then it resets itself. And starts all over again. Pretty amazing, isn't it? All of this just to keep that blood flowing. Next slide. So what all do we have here in the muscle? We've got some mechanism that holds the calcium. We've got a mechanism that releases the calcium at precisely the right time. We've got some way to take the calcium back up because if it stayed in that space, we'd have constantly contracted muscles and that would be bad. That'd be no blood flow. That'd be death. We've got to have a place for the calcium to bind and it has to do exactly the right thing when it binds. We have to have a site on that actin molecule for the myosin head to come and actually be attracted to. It's got to bind there in order to make that movement. That myosin head has to that spot has to be either turned on or turned off by some molecule. It has to be able to bind that site, like lock and key, and only that site. The myosin head that can be bent, we've got to have that thing, and it's got to function. The actin bound on one end. If that actin filament isn't attached to those Z lines, you just get lots of movement, Right? It's actually got to pull the muscle together, so it has to be attached somewhere. And lastly, all these things have got to be made of the exact right proteins in the exact right shape, perfectly put together. Remember the mousetrap. If the platform's paper, it doesn't work. We throw it in the garbage. Next slide. The chemicals of blood clotting had to have evolved simultaneously. But I tell you, that is an irreducibly complex system. If you reduce it down to its most simple functional state, while it still works, it is still incredibly complex. The protein synthesis that gets to you, gets you to each one of those molecules in its functioning state is amazingly complex. But forget that for a moment. Just those four proteins in our imaginary model, are still a complex system with great design and engineering. But you've got to keep them moving, and that takes the whole muscular system of a heart and veins and muscle contraction, which is also incredibly complex. So the question is, did all of this happen by chance? operating inside the laws of chemistry and physics? Or is this unbelievable engineering? And is the scientific mind going to look at it and make the conclusion, observation and conclusion, that it was created and not that it evolved? And again, remember, time is not the hero of the plot. Time is the villain Because over time, things break down. They don't assemble themselves together. 
Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about irreducible complexity. Maybe at some other point I can come back and talk about the laws of chemistry and physics and and design and purpose in their explanation and argument for a creator. Let's pray. God, you're, uh, you're awesome. And I look at the world around me and I draw the conclusion that it was made. Look at the 86 billion neurons in my brain, in the brains of the people in this room. And I know you're out there. And I know, God, that the next step is for me to just kind of pursue you and figure out what it is and why you made me. But before all that, I can't get away from the fact that you created me. And it is intuitively obvious to even the most casual observer. Thank you for this time together, and thank you for the people in this room. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mark. And there will be a test as you leave on everything Mark said. Okay? Now, you know, every design presupposes a designer. The more complex the design, the more brilliant the designer. The body, as Mark described, is the most brilliant design imaginable. What does that tell us about our designer? Isn't that fun to think about? I hope you enjoyed today and hearing from Mark. And I hope you'll come back next week as um, we introduce a whole new series as we talk about opportunities for you and how you can get involved in leaving a legacy Uh, through serving and involvement in other people's lives. So thanks for coming, and we look forward to seeing you. The next series is called Motor. Motor. (laughs) To keep with the military theme, Mortar, uh, sparking a legacy of action. We'll see you back next week.